Hi. How y'all doing? There's one person here. He said hi very loudly. I invite and challenge and encourage, extol you to get around Advent conspiracy, a different way of thinking about Christmas, a different way of celebrating, and by doing so, you're actually going to tangibly kick a dent in 21,000 kids who will die today. Like, let's turn that around. We believe that we can, and Advent conspiracy is one way to get around that Christmas tree and sort of some tables in the lobby to help you plug in and connect with that. Uh, I just want to, from the depths of my heart, commend the MSU Bobcats football team for a great season. Good job, men. That was one for the books. We applaud you. Way to go. We're already looking forward to next year. We can't wait. Uh, Friday, I pulled Dylan and Preston and Jasmine out of school. Shh, don't tell anybody. That'll be our little secret. And we went over to the big city of Butte to watch the Mining City Duels wrestling meet. And I just want to put a plug in for the sport of wrestling. It is just one of the coolest sports, in my opinion. You agree? Yeah, you guys just like the singlets, don't you? Uh, I used to say that you couldn't pay me all the money in the world to get me to go back and relive my high school years. But honestly, the more I watch our sons wrestle, the more I wish that I could go back and wrestle, kind of do high school over again. It's just a great sport. The Bozeman uh, High coaching staff is a fantastic group of guys, and I love that my sons are influenced by them and taught the sport by them, and so it's just a lot of fun. So we watched the day, had a great day, and we're driving back from Butte on Friday evening. Kids are crashed out in the back seat, but then there's Dylan, and Dylan is very, very precocious, and he's always alive, and he's about to doze off, and then all of a sudden, he gets a thought in his head, as he often does, and he sort of pops up, and he says, Dad, Christmas is Jesus' birthday, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, it sure is, and then his little wheels are turning. I'm watching in my rear view, sort of the dimly lit rear view mirror. I can just barely see him back there, and he says, well, then why do we get presents at Christmas time? It's profound. It's really a great question. I said, well, remember the wise men, Dylan? They came and they brought Jesus gifts as a way of worshiping him. And then because Jesus was such an amazing gift to all the world, the most amazing gift, people started giving each other gifts to remind ourselves of the great gift that was Jesus Christ. And I watched little Dylan's seven-year-old wheels turning in the rearview mirror. And here's what he said. Dad, I think that Jesus should be the one who gets all the presents, not us. We should have a huge party for him with presents and cake and everything. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's exactly right, Dylan. Preach it, brother. Good job. And we forget that's what Christmas is all about, don't we? Which is why last weekend we began a conversation around here about how Christmas time has lost its original intent. How that month between Thanksgiving and Christmas have become all about consumerism And I invited and challenged and exhorted us as a community to press the reset button on our Christmas time. And for us to get around restoring these days to their original intent via this one little word that packs incredible punch and it's that word adore. And I love how Bob put it, to love greatly, to love God greatly, adore Christmas time, frankly, every other time of the year, is supposed to be all about that, loving God greatly, adoring God with our whole hearts, our whole lives, making space and time to celebrate, worship, revel in Him. Will you reset this Christmas time and put down the consumerism, think differently, and get about adoring 
him. And we started last weekend, if you were here, talking about how the angels adored him that first Christmas. And we sort of looked at how their adoration and their worship and their loving God greatly impacts us. And I just want to ask you, by way of review, how did you do this week? Did you adore God? Did you love God greatly more this week than you did last week? If you did, I say, like, way to go. If you didn't, if there's room for growth still, you got another shot. This week is coming. And I encourage you to get around that with all of you. Make room, make space, make time to love God greatly this week. Put down the holiday busyness and adore God. Today we're going to talk about how the shepherds adore. And to do that, we're going to go to the most famous passage about Christmas from the Bible, Luke chapter 2. If you've got a text, you can turn there. Luke chapter 2. If you don't, it'll be right up here. Luke 2, starting in verse 1. We're going to learn about adoration from the shepherds today. Let me start at the top. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus, lots of you know this passage, don't you? Very, very familiar. Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth, laid him in a manger, because there was no lodging available for them. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby. Here they are. The shepherds, staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. That's what shepherds do. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them. The radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven, peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. And we sort of picture that scene in our minds, and to sort of help us connect with that in a new way, we have a very short video interpretation of just one possibility of what that scene with the shepherds and the angels might, and I mean might, have been like. And I was like, Josiah, really? Come on, dude. That's my wife we're talking about. Then he goes running off to Ezekiel, crying like a wolf. Is that a wolf? No, it was the boy who cried wolf. No, is that a wolf? Nope. That's a tree. Hmm. Looks a little bit more like a shrubbery. A shrubbery? A shrubbery. Can you see anything? I I don't know. I I don't know. I kind of would know. I feel so small. So so alone. Fear not. Fear not. Fear yes. It's official. I've messed my tunic. Chester, get back here! Don't run away! What? 
don't even know what's going on. My favorite sheep. I have a headache. Oh. Oh. Why are they so bright? I've never seen anything that bright before. It was wonderful. I've never seen an angel. An angel? What's that? Yes, it's Spanish for angel. Oh, who told you that? Guillermo. Or Juan. It was one or the other. A savior. A savior. A savior. A savior. A savior of what? Wait, savior. Who? The swaddler. The swaddler? They said he was swaddling. They were talking about his clothes, you stray sheep. Oh. Well, we got to go to Bethlehem. Yeah. Yep. To see the swaddler. Hark the herald angels sing. There's one interpretation. We should go back to the Bible. When the angels have returned to heaven, seriously, like back to the Bible, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened, what the angel had told them, had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Now imagine you are one of those shepherds. You're out there in the field, guarding your sheep. You're minding your own business. This isn't any ordinary day at the office, is it? And it's really quite noteworthy that God chose, God decided that the shepherds were going to be among the very first to hear about Jesus' birth, isn't it? And over the years, a whole bunch across the life of the church has been made about that reality, that fact. Hordes of scholars have argued that this announcement of God arriving in human flesh, being made to shepherds, symbolizes God meeting the despised. After all, as the story goes, shepherds were considered outcasts and sinners. As some applications of this text go, the angels coming to announce Jesus' arrival to shepherds mirrors the reality that Jesus came to earth to minister to outcasts and sinners. You've probably heard many a Christmas time sermon preached on that very point. God valuing those that high society despises, so on and so forth. But get this, that rather low view of shepherds comes much later than the first century Jewish context that Luke 2 unfolds within. All you have to do is start at the beginning of the Bible, read through to the end, and you see that biblical shepherd imagery is mostly positive, which means that the angels showing up to announce Christ's birth to shepherds, it isn't a statement that's theological or sociological or even economic, as much as it is just an everyday living kind of statement. Angels announcing Christ's birth to shepherds proves that God is involved not just with special people, not just with, quote, great people, but instead he is involved with all people. Shepherds are sort of the Joe Sixpack of the first century. God is absolutely and entirely committed to the masses of humanity, all of us. And so with that in view, let's work through three different truths that the shepherds teach us from that first Christmas that I think will help you and I adore God more fully, love God more greatly this Christmas time. The first one is this. These are on your notes page. 
Our full adoration of God is only possible if and when we are content. And I mean fully content, and I mean materially content. I'm not talking about spiritual contentment. I'm talking about material contentment. There's a difference between the two. From everything we know about first century shepherds, they embodied material contentedness. Shepherds get at the core of their being what it is and what it means and what it feels like to be content in the station of life that they occupy. Think about shepherds. They're not busy chasing status or role or position. They're not busy climbing any corporate ladders. They just care for their sheep. They go out every night, they go out every day, and they care for their sheep. Shepherds aren't chasing big money, big rewards. Their focus is merely on their flock. It's all about the sheep. As a matter of fact, shepherds sort of live out this very cool ethic from Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. You can turn there if you want or look on the screens with me. This is almost like the prayer of the shepherd. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? And if I am too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs, the shepherds would pray. They embodied what it means to be content. You remember David, who was in his own right a terrific shepherd. He penned these, some of the most famous from Scripture. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my what? Shepherd. The Lord is my, our Shepherd, I have all that I need. Sort of the final word on contentment, isn't it? Because the Lord is our great shepherd. We have all that we need. And I'm sure there's lots of us sitting in this room and within the hearing of my voice who hear that verse, and we go, yep, absolutely, the Lord is my shepherd. I do have all I need, but we don't feel materially content do we? But I'm telling you the truth. If we don't feel materially content, we're never, and I mean never, going to be able to love God greatly. We're never going to be able to fully adore God the way he intends because we're distracted by this gnawing discontentment inside of us. And so we pursue more, and we pursue bigger, and we pursue that, whatever that might be for you, And all of that pursuit consumes the space in our hearts and lives that's reserved for adoration, the space in our hearts and lives that's reserved for loving God greatly. And so we don't celebrate him, we don't worship him, we don't adore him, we don't revel in who God is because discontent consumes us, gnaws at us. And I want to talk to you families for just a moment because families, what will eat your lunch on the contentment deal which will therefore eat your lunch on the adoration deal, are these little buggers that we call our kids. Because kids are notoriously discontent, aren't they? Any of you know about that? They're just notoriously discontent. And I love my kids, and I know that you love yours, but they can wreck your contentment factor. That can, in turn, wreck your adoration, your worship, your loving God greatly factor. Let me show you or explain how this goes. Starting sometime in October, you might revise the date a bit. Around our house, it seems to be October. The kids start talking feverishly about all that they want for Christmas. Does this happen in your house? Yeah, they see an ad on TV, and they're like, Dad, I want that. Or they're surfing the internet, like, you know, six-year-olds surfing the internet Christmas shopping. Like, Dad, Mom, I want that. Or a catalog shows up. No, it's that. And so they start to make this list, right? And at our house, it's kind of a long list, and it's kind of an expensive list. 
And then you know what happens, parents, is the kids, they sort of hold us hostage to that list, right? Do you you know what I'm talking about? I kind of do because I remember doing this to my parents. I'm a jerk. I'm not now, I was then. And that holding us hostage to that list by our kids, it goes something like this. Mom or dad, if you don't get me this thing or that thing or all of those things, then I'm going to be miserable and I am going to make your life miserable. Right? Now, it's never that overt. You're like, oh, my sweetie has never said anything like that. You're right. They never say it. It just happens beneath the waterline. It's rarely ever voiced so blatantly. And parents, right then and there, we have a choice to make. Am I going to get caught up in my kid's discontent? Or am I going to worship and adore and love God greatly? Because if we get sucked into our kid's discontent, then our ability to worship God and adore God, love God greatly goes right out the window. And you're like, well, how, how does that work? Because if we get sucked in, we get caught up in worrying about our kids' reactions when they don't get all the stuff that they want from their Christmas list or they don't get anything that they want from their Christmas list. Their discontent becomes our discontent if we fall for that sort of hostage scenario. And when we fall for the hostage scenario, it usually teases out something like this. We get to scheming, right? Like we'd have never thought of getting them that thing on our own, but they plant the idea in our hearts and minds and they're like, oh, they want it so much. And then we start scratching and clawing. How can I get them that? I'm going to stretch to get them that. And then their discontent has become our discontent. Our ability to adore God and worship God sort of goes out the window because we're owning their thing. And it isn't just our kids who do this surrogate discontent thing to us. Anyone can hijack your adoration of God, especially this time of year. Your spouse and their discontent, or your fiance and their discontent, your parents and their discontent, your friends, their discontent, your extended family and their discontent, whoever it is, they can jack up the Christmas time expectations. They impose their discontentedness on you, and then there goes your worship. There goes your loving God greatly right out the window because you're consumed with trying to meet their sky-high expectation. Very, very unrealistic. So what do you do with that? I'm going to tell you what I do, and you can take this or you can leave this. Early and often, I stick straight pins into overinflated Christmas time expectations. I pop them just like you pop a balloon. Bink! Bink! I deflate them. When my kids or some of my kids come and they say, Hey, Dad! My buddy's getting the new iPad for Christmas. You guys get me one of those. I pull out the straight pin. Bink! Sorry, bud, that ain't happening. Sorry. And I just sort of leave it there. And you can make it a teaching moment, right? You can talk about the reasons why you're not getting a $600 plus present for Christmas. $600 times seven at our house. 4200 No. Uh-uh. Not at our house. It's a great teaching moment about worship and giving and priorities and why and all that. And some people go like, well, it's so heartless. It's cold. It's Christmas time. Let's jack the expectation. No. No. Because us being content and us understanding that adoration of God comes out of realizing he is all we need matters too much. It matters way too much to get sucked into everyone else's discontentment having your worship hijacked by their discontentment. God says, worship me, adore me, love me greatly. Don't get sucked into all this other stuff. Our adoration of God is only possible if we're fully and entirely content. God is enough. 
God is sufficient. Number two, our obedience to God's directives determines our ability to fully adore God. Our obedience to God's directives determines our ability to fully adore God. It unfolded like this for the shepherds. Look at Luke 2, 12. This is the angel talking to the shepherds. You will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Now, there isn't necessarily an explicit directive from the angels to the shepherds telling them to go anywhere, right? But the shepherds still took those words as an invitation from the Lord to actually go. Leave their sheep. Go find Jesus. It unfolds some more. Verses 15 and 16. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village, found Mary and Joseph. There was the baby lying in the manger. They went, they found Jesus, and then look at 17 through 20. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened, what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. The angels announce Jesus' birth to the shepherds. There's this implicit invitation from God via the angels for the shepherds to go see Jesus. They go, they find him, they find Mary, they find Joseph. They go back to the fields, back to their responsibilities. And the whole time, they are loving God greatly, adoring God fully. And it can go just like that for all of us. It should go just like that for all of us. Imagine this, God directs you, he directs me, he directs us to do something for him. And he might instruct us to do something for him through his word or perhaps via direct revelation from him, a nudge, a whisper, a prompt, call it what you will. And so what do we do? We obey. Why? We love him. And so we go and we obey him, we serve him, we do the thing that God told us to do. We step out in great faith and we trust him in this new, fresh, vital way that we've never perhaps done before. We go and we go boldly. We obey boldly. And on the flip side of all of that, what do you know? I assure you that your adoration of God on the backside of your obedience to him will be amplified simply because you obeyed God. You're experiencing him in a fresh new way. Every single time, obedience to God catalyzes adoration and worship and loving God greatly. It's like a launching pad. Obedience is like a launching pad for our worship of God. If we want to adore and worship God fully, we must be obeying God fully. Disobedience and adoration, they are mutually exclusive things. Adoration of God, loving God greatly, requires every single thing in our hearts and lives are centered on, oriented toward, and around God. And if we're living disobediently, even in the smallest realm, we will not fully adore God. We will not fully love God. We have this little closet of our lives over here where everything else over here is all God's. And yes, God, I love you greatly over here but then we got this little locked door over here and we this is mine god you're just not gonna meddle in here this is my stuff this is my thing this is my habit this is the way i spend my time nope you're not going in there if that's happening 
If you have a locked door to God, you will never be able to worship him fully. You will never be able to love him as greatly as he desires nor intends. It cannot happen. When we live with any disobedience, our hearts and lives, they're repelling from God. Picture two magnets that are repelling each other because you have them pointed the wrong way, right? It's kind of like that with God. And I don't mean God repels us when we're living in sin. It's us who repels from him. Think about when you were a little kid and you disobeyed, you did something wrong, you did something you knew that you shouldn't do. You introduced damage into your relationship with your family, your parents. Who were the very last person on the, people on the face of the earth who you wanted to hang out with? Your parents. You, didn't want any, you were like hiding from them, right? It's like that with us and God when we sin and when we disobey because of the damage that that sin has introduced into our relationship with him. Check your adoration factor. Check your ability to love God greatly. And if it's low, I challenge you to check your obedience factor to God, to his directives. What has he been asking you to put down for some length of time? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a habit. And you're saying like, no, God, I like that. That's mine. I'm leaving it locked up in this closet over here. And you can have that much of me, 80% or 90% or even 99%, but this is mine. You can't have that. God says, I actually want that too. I actually want that too. And your ability to fully adore him hinges on your giving that up to him. What's God asking you to put down like today? Like now, what's he saying? Stop it to. Or take the other side. What's God inviting you to? What's God calling you to? What's God urging you out of your comfort zone on? And you're like, but it's going to be so hard and it's so much bigger than I am and I'm not sure I can pull it off. God says, go, do it, trust, obey, serve, give. Our obedience to God's directives determines our ability to fully adore him. Number three, and we'll land on this one. A soft heart is required to fully adore God. A soft, tender heart is required to fully adore God. And we get this really cool insight actually into the heart's of the shepherds on that first Christmas. And you're like, well, I don't remember in Luke 2 reading anything about the hearts of the shepherds. I don't see anything there. We get a glimpse of their hearts based on their response to what the angels tell them. We see into their hearts. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 15. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, here it is. It starts right here. Let's go to Bethlehem. That's heart revealing. That is a heart-revealing statement. Let's go to Bethlehem with emphasis, exclamation point. Let's see this thing that has, had, that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened, what the angel had said to them about this child, Jesus. And all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks. Here's another heart-revealing statement. Glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. We don't see 
any traits whatsoever of hard-heartedness in the response of the shepherds. Now, when you think about a hard heart, what traits come to mind? Things like sarcasm, skepticism, irritability, anger, rudeness, being demanding, being cynical, being defensive. Those are just a sampling of the traits of a hard heart. And we don't see those traits anywhere in the response of the shepherds. They're just not there. Instead, what do we see? The shepherds say, let's go. Let's see all of this. They hurry to Bethlehem. They're busting at the seams to see Jesus. They're telling everyone possible everything they had just seen. They're thrilled to report on what God was doing and what he had done. And then they go back out to their work. And all the while, they're adoring God, praising God, loving God greatly. They weren't like, yeah, that was a nice interruption. Now back to the grind. Ha uh-uh. The encounters they had with God were actually defining, defining for them. Their hearts were soft, not hard. And I have no doubt that there are some people here and within the hearing of my voice who are having a really difficult time adoring God this Christmas time, any time for that matter, because your heart is just flat so hard, kind of like this rock, right? When you think about your heart, this is kind of what it's like. It's just, bam, right there. And this time of year, especially, you're being bombarded with the truth that God came to earth on that first Christmas because he loves you. He loves you that much that God stepped out of heaven, took off his godness, and came down here and put on humanity. And he wants to live in relationship with you. He did all of that for you. And you hear that. You hear this stuff about adoring him and loving him and worshiping him and loving him greatly and so on. And it meets up with your hard heart right here. And there's sarcasm and there's skepticism and there's irritability and there's anger. There's demands and cynicism and defense. Your heart is just so hard. Not just toward God, but toward everything, everyone, frankly. You're just PO'd virtually all of the time. That's your MO in life. This is you. And I know that hard hearts aren't exclusive to men. But men, some of you, you think that being hard-hearted is what it is to be a man. Somewhere along the way, culture has shouted loud and clear to you that to be a real man is to have this rock-hard heart, and you're doing a really good job of living that out. This is you. This is your heart. And you're like a bull in a china closet smashing everything you touch to smithereens wrecking relationships and just bowling over everything. And then it's Christmas time. And we're talking about adoring God and making space for him, the gift of the Son of God for you so that you could have the life that God intends for you to have before we screwed it up with our sin. And that message meets up with your sarcasm and your skepticism and your irritability and your anger and your rudeness and your demands and your cynicism and your defense. And some of you think that's just what it is to be a man. That's just what it is to be masculine. I want to show you the word of the Lord to every single person, man, woman, and child who has a heart like this. And it comes from Ezekiel 36, 26. The word of the Lord to every person, especially people with hard hearts. And I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new heart, the word of the Lord to you. And I will put a new spirit in you. 
I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive, tender, responsive heart. That's what God desires to do with every single person on planet Earth. Heart transplant. A heart transplant. Which means that to be a man, woman, or child of God is to have this heart of stone replaced with a tender, responsive heart. Just like the hearts of the shepherds who God revealed the birth of his son Jesus Christ to that first Christmas. If you want to love God greatly, you have to have a heart transplant. It requires a tender, responsive heart. How's yours? How's yours? Why don't you take your stuff and set it aside, and I just invite you to get still and quiet with God. Just get alone with Him. Press in with Him. moments, I'm going to work you through those three things we've talked about together. And I urge you not just to blow by this, but I invite you to do serious business with God, because this stuff really matters. We're not just playing games. We're not just playing church. This is as serious as it gets. How's your contentment? Especially this time of year. How's your contentment? Is God really enough for you? Or are you under the illusion that there's more other that and so you're chasing it what's it look like for you to actually live out the 23rd psalm verse 1 the Lord is my shepherd I have everything I need that truth ought to decide some things for you about what you're going to do and what you're not going to do and what you're going to pursue and what you're not going to pursue and what you're going to be about with your whole life. He's sufficient. God is sufficient. And then how are you going to draw boundaries in your heart and life so that other people's discontent doesn't get in the way of your ability to love God greatly? even with your own kids. Of course you love them. It's not about love. It's about priority. It's about worship. And then how's your obedience factor? Point number two, how's your obedience factor? What's that thing that God's been pursuing you on, asking you to put down, stop, cease, cut out? been working on that for some time and you've just said, huh, uh, 
I like that. God's inviting you today to put it down. Leave it here. Don't go back to it. It, isn't, it just isn't worth it. It just isn't worth it. The other side of that is what's God asking you to do? What's he been asking you to do? How has he been asking you to step out? And you've just said, no, it's too scary. It's too big, too daunting. Go, do it. He's with you. And then third, how's your heart? How's your heart? Is it rock hard? Is it stubborn? Or is it soft, tender, responsive to him? What heart work does God need to do in you so that it is tender and responsive and stays that way? Maybe you're a person who realizes today that you need a heart transplant. You've never experienced that via the love and grace and forgiveness of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And maybe that's what you need today. If that's your desire, you can stop running. You can stop rebelling from him. You can come home to him today. This could be your homecoming day. And you can come home to God by asking him to forgive you, to wash you clean in the shed blood of Jesus Christ who died so that you could live in relationship with him. And if that's what you're doing today, you can tell that to God and you can tell that to him by praying along with me like this. God, I get it. I'm a sinner to my core. And I've been pushing and shoving and running from you but I'm done with all that. Starting right now. Because Jesus came, he lived, he showed me how to live, he died, I'm all done running, I'm coming home. And I thank you, Jesus, for that gift, for dying to set me free. Here, God, is my heart of stone. Here's everything I am. Wash me clean, make me new. Give me, please, God, a new heart a tender, responsive heart by the power of your death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus, I'm all yours. I love you with all of me. And if you're stepping into faith in God today for the first time, that's the biggest deal of your whole life. Nothing matters more. Nothing carries more weight than that. It's such a big deal that around here, we ask that you let us know that. And this is just a me, you, and God moment. Nobody else is looking around this room, just me, if you made that very bold declaration and decision today, I'm just going to ask you right now to lift your hands and lock eyes with me. Just say yes. I'm saying yes to God today. Yeah, there. Yeah, way to go. Absolutely, yes. Just make sure I catch your eye. And in the back, yeah, I see you over there to my left. Yes. And there, yes. Yes. Hearts being made new. God, we actually believe that loving you greatly 
adoring you fully is what matters most in this life. And so God, I pray for us that our contentment would be found only in you. That you would be our all-sufficient God. And that we would live in that reality and that nothing would be able to disrupt us from that truth. And then God, that our obedience of you would be entire. There wouldn't be a corner or a closet of our hearts and lives that isn't relinquished and open to you. It's all yours. Help us obey fully. And then God, keep our hearts tender and responsive, soft. Always. Don't let any hint of callousness creep in. Sarcasm and cynicism and anger and may it just not have a place in our hearts, God. You're worth our everything and so we give it to you now.